Today on Locked On Mariners, the host spends way too much time in C-Block talking about other sports. Welcome to Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Here's your host, D.C. Lundberg. Thank you, Joey Martin. Good morning, Mariners fans, or afternoon, or evening, or whenever you're listening to this. It may be 2.30 a.m. in the middle of December. Who knows? But whatever the case, I am D.C. Lundberg, the bowling and curling ambassador here on the Locked On Podcast Network, here to guide you through another episode of Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I just said that. Brought to you by Built Bar. Please remember to download, rate, and follow this program using whichever podcasting app that you personally care to use. Ask your smart device to play Locked On Mariners podcast or any program here on the Locked On Podcast Network, or T-L-O-P-N, or Tloppin. Boy, that was so stereotypically 1968 rock radio DJ, wasn't it? It's a little late here. It's almost midnight here on Sunday night. I'm a little loopy. But it was a good weekend for Mariners fans. After dropping the first game on this series on Thursday, they uh, took the final two games over the weekend uh, following Friday's off day. Those two games will be the first two segments of today's show. And the third segment's going to be packed. Not necessarily very long, but packed. We'll talk about the impending series in Baltimore, which begins this afternoon. Uh, this afternoon's game will begin at 4.05 p.m. in Seattle and Spokane, 7.05 p.m. in Baltimore and East Hampton, Connecticut, and 1.05 a.m. the next day in Antwerp. I'll also speak of uh, the season's first no-hitter, which was historic for uh, reasons other than just being a no-hitter. Also, a very rare occurrence in bowling yesterday. Very, very cool. And the Men's World Curling Championships concluded yesterday. All of that in C-Block, but we will begin with Saturday's game, a 4-3, 10-inning victory for the Mariners. Yusei Kikuchi was quite impressive in his second start of the season, did not make very many mistakes. He offered one dead central to Kyle Garlick, which went for a single. Then Nelson Cruz took a slider on the outside corner the opposite way for a two-run home run. Kikuchi-san went six innings and threw 94 pitches in those six innings, an average of about 15 and two-thirds per inning. You know, pretty efficient. Pitch counts are down across the board this year, not only with the Mariners, but with everyone. It's lingering weirdness from last year's bizarre season, where pitchers' schedules were all out of whack. Managers are just taking more time this season, stretching them out. With as weird as last season was, I have absolutely no problem with this. Uh, Michael Pineda got the start for the Twins on Saturday. He was also pretty good. He really only made two big mistakes. Both of them went for solo home runs. One to Mitch Hanniger, and the other was Taylor Trammell's first big league home run. Both pitches were hung in almost the exact same part of the plate, almost dead center, slightly into the right-handed batter's box. Manager's was a change, I believe, and Trammell's was a breaking ball. I might have that backwards. But in any case, they both hit the ball over the wall, and the result is the same whether they hit a change and a curve or whether they hit a knuckleball and an ethos pitch. 
the Mariners did not have an at bat with runner with a runner in scoring position until the eighth, after J.P. Crawford stole second base while Manager struck out, and that stolen base proved very important as Crawford scored from second on a Kyle Seager single up the middle to give the Mariners a three to two lead. Had he still been on first, I doubt he could have made it to third, let alone score, quite honestly. And the pitcher, former Mariner Alex Colomay, was paying absolutely no attention to Seager at all, allowing him to waltz into second base with an uncontested steal. The Twins tied the game in the bottom of the eighth. Rafael Montero had come in for the eighth to try to notch a two-inning save, and it didn't go too well. The first batter, Kyle Garlick, blooped one behind second base, which Dylan Moore made a very good play on. It looked like it was going to be, you know, kind of a semi-cheap hit, but alas, it was just a pop-out. Montero then walked Nelson Cruz on four pitches, then hit Byron Buxton on the very next offering. Mitch Garver grounded out to advance both runners along, then the first pitch to Max Kepler bounced uh, behind the plate, which catcher Luis Torrens could not uh, corral. It came up, hit the heel of his catcher's mitt, and bounced away, easily allowing the tying run to score. At first look, I thought Torrens could have done a better job trying to block it, but looking at it again, he did get on top of the ball. It just took a funny bounce. Jake Cave had pinch run for Cruz, and he scored that tying run. That was, however, the only run scored that inning, so it was 3-3 after regulation, meaning that T-ball rules would be in effect from here on out. The M's began the 10th with Taylor Trammell on 2nd and Braden Bishop at the dish. Bishop had come in to play left field in the bottom of the 8th, and lo and behold, a manager actually puts on the sacrifice bunt in the top of the 10th, something I advocated for all last season. If you're the away team, small ball in your one run, and that takes that option away from the home team. As an added bonus, Bishop beat out the throw to first, so he reaches base. J.P. Crawford grounded out, advancing Bishop to second, bringing up Mitch Hanniger with runners at second and third and one away. He hit a fly ball out to left field. Garlic made a sliding catch coming in for the ball. Trammell tags and comes in with the go-ahead run, giving Manninger a sack fly and a very important RBI. Ty France grounded out to end the inning, but that one run proved to be very important. Keenan Middleton came in to pitch the 10th and set the Twins down 1-2-3 in impressive fashion. Only threw two balls outside of the strike zone, both were were borderline, and both were put in play for outs. He did hang a slider to Buxton, but he was very fortunate that it was pulled foul. Had it been fair, it would have been a home run and a tie ball game. Nonetheless, Key earned his first save as a Mariner, and his first save at all since April 23rd, 2018. Also appearing on the mound for the Mariners were Casey Sadler and Kendall Graveman, who pitched a 1-2-3 ninth to send the game into extra frames. Or since the World Curling Championships ended this weekend, or at least the Men's World Championship, an extra end. Hmm. 
Going over the notes I took during this game, I took a lot of notes for some reason. Uh, it was good to see Seeger go up the middle with his RBI single. He tends to get a little pull happy at times, which is why you see opponents shift against him as much as they do. Montero being used for a potential two-inning save made me wonder once again why the Mariners think they need an eight-man bullpen. They really have not used very many relievers per game, and carrying so many pitchers leads to a thin bench, which sort of came into play after Bishop's bunt single in the 10th. J.P. Crawford was the next man up, which would have been a perfect opportunity to pinch hit, given Crawford's recent struggles. Bishop had already come in off the bench as a defensive replacement. Evan White was the other other non-catcher on the bench, and not only was he nursing a quad injury, more on that in C-Block, but since Bishop had replaced the super-versatile Sam Haggerty, if you pinch hit for Crawford, the op- your options to align the defense for the bottom of the inning are... You don't have very many options. If you pinch hit White, he's limited to first base. And if you pinch hit Murphy, who was the spare catcher for this game, he's limited to catcher and the corner outfield spots in an emergency. The only things that I could have seen being done is to move Ty France out of the DH spot and put him at second base and then slide Dylan Moore from second base to shortstop, which isn't bad, but it's far from ideal. It wound up not mattering since Manager drove in the go-ahead run, but I did feel as if the lack of position players was kind of put on display in this instance. But the most important thing is that the M's got a win, and got a win in a game where the offense really did not do all that much. Pitching is what kept them in this one. Very good to see, especially for Yusei Kikuchi. He's 2-2 uh, two and two in games started thus far, two pretty good starts. I hope he can make it 3-3. Three and three. I've been harsh on him on this show. He has not shown me anything in his first two seasons to make me believe he could be successful at the big league level. But my goodness, if he pitches like that most of the season, I'll be forced to eat my words. And honestly, gang, I hope he makes me eat my words. I want him to be successful, and I want this team to be successful. One final note about Kyle Garlick. Last name spelled G-A-R-L-I-C-K. I'm wondering... When he's lifting weights in the gym, when he does a bench press or a shoulder press, could that be considered a garlic press? Hmm. I'm sure you could all see that pun coming from a mile away. Even though this isn't a visual medium, you could still see it. That's how obvious it was, gang. Time for the trivia corner, and we'll do a trivia question. It has nothing to do with this game or Sunday's game. It stems from the Men's World Curling Championships, which concluded last night. Sweden had won the previous two World Championships. They're an absolutely outstanding team. So the question is this. How many Major League Baseball players have been born in Sweden? I will say that the answer is more than zero. There is at least one, and I'll tell you exactly how many following this word from Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football's over, college basketball's over, the men's world curling championships are over, but the women's world championships are coming up, NBA's in full swing, NHL's going, baseball's going as well. Bet Online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Uh, Real time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's absolutely free to sign up. Free! 
Head on over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts promo code locked on. Answer to the trivia question, there have actually been four Swedish board Major League Baseball players, three pitchers and a first baseman, though only one of them played more than two games. The first was Charlie Hallstrom, who pitched one game for the 1885 Providence Grays of the National League. He was born January 22nd, 1863 in Yonkoping. I really hope I pronounced that correctly. I doubt I did. J-O-N-K-O-P. P-I-N-G. The next two both debuted in 1914. First baseman Charlie Bold was born October 27, 1894 in Karlskronka and played two games in August that year for the St. Louis Browns, striking out in his only plate appearance. Eric Erickson, born March 13, 1892 in Vargarda, pitched one game for the 1914 New York Giants, eight games for the 1916 Detroit Tigers, then appeared in five more seasons from 1918 to 22 with the Tigers and Washington Senators. He, by far, has the most career games among Swedes, 145 of them, 93 were starts, and he amassed a 34-57 and record in his big league career with an ERA of 385. The final native Swede to play Major League Baseball played one game on October 4, 1916 for the Philadelphia Athletics, and his name was Axel Lindstrom, born August 26, 1895 in Gustafsburg. No Swedish-born man has played Major League Baseball since Erickson's final game on September 29, 1922. I will also take this time to note that there has never been a Major League Baseball player named Lundberg, or Lundberg as it were, but there have been a handful of minor leaguers. The most recent was pitcher Spike Lundberg, who played 12 years in the minors, calling it a career after the 2009 season. Coming up, were the Mariners able to win the rubber match of the series on Sunday? Yes. Hm. Guess I don't have to do that story now. Maybe I'll just yodel for seven minutes instead. Now back to Locked On Mariners and your host, D.C. Lundberg. All right. Thank you very much, JM. Hey, gang, get all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes with a Locked On Today podcast. I know they're serious because the word ALL is in all caps. Peter Bukowski updates you on the latest news in every major sport, with the exception of curling, which is not a major sport, with the help of our local experts. Follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y, or wherever you get podcasts. And again, for curling, keep it right here on Locked On Mariners. Sunday's game was one of those contests that seemed over by the third inning, or at least it seemed that way to me. Chris Flexen got the start and was not nearly as sharp as he was in his Mariners debut. He was okay the first couple innings, but ran into major trouble in the third. Command just wasn't there, and he left some balls out in the middle of the plate and then began walking a few hitters in the fifth. After three innings, it was four-zip and as anemic as the Mariners' offense has been, and also as good as the Twins' offense can be, I figured the game was over. And then Byron Buxton hits the two-run home run in the fifth to extend that lead to 6 nothing, and it really looked over. More on Buxton later. 
Matt Shoemaker was on point as well, but that all changed in the top of the sixth. Kyle Seeger led off the inning and took a hanging knuckle curve into the right field seats to get the Mariners on the board. It all started to go pear-shaped for Shoemaker during the ensuing at-bat to Jose Marmalejos. A 1-2 pitch at the top of the zone was called a ball to bring the count to 2-2. Two and two. Marmo should have been rung up, gang, uh, but the bat, the at bat continued, and Marmo proceeds to smash a double off the top of the tall wall in right center field, inches from being a home run. Originally called a double, it was reviewed, and the original call stood. But that proved to be academic, as following a Luis Torrens single, young Taylor Trammell blasted his second homer of the weekend out to the concourse in right field, a 421-foot three-run shot that brought the M's back to within two runs, and the game that looked over all of a sudden wasn't. I think Shoemaker was distracted by the missed call during Marmalejos' at-bat. The pitch that Trammell jacked was another mistake, and he immediately started towards the home plate umpire to argue, which earned him an early trip to the showers. He was tossed, and the Twins brought in Cody Stashak in from the bullpen. Ems got one more run across in the seventh on an RBI fielder's choice, and then got to former Mariner Alex Colomay in the ninth. Sharp singles off the bats of Mitch Hanniger and Ty France began the inning, bringing up the man of the hour, so to speak, Kyle Seeger, who at that point was 3-for-3 three three with a home run and a walk. Colome hung a cutter to him, and Seeger made him pay big time. A three-run home run to give the Mariners a two-run lead at 8-6, to six, and still no one out in the inning. M's closer Rafael Montero began, began warming up in the bullpen at that time in preparation for a save opportunity. Colome was not sharp, and one out later allowed another single, and then was removed from the ballgame. Jorge Alcala entered from the pen, immediately gave up a single to Trammell, but then induced an inning-ending double play. The aforementioned Montero came in and set the Twins down in short order to earn the save and give the Mariners the victory in the game and a 2-1 victory in the series. Kyle Seeger, 4 for 4, two home runs, a walk, four runs batted in. What a day for the veteran third baseman. That was the only walk issued by Twins pitching, by the way, that walked to Seeger. Mariners struck out 12 times. I don't like that trend, quite honestly. They've been striking out a lot. A uh, t- ton of strikeouts. Hopefully that'll improve as the young players continue to develop. J.P. Crawford went two for four, although the second hit was something of a bloop hit. His struggles in spring training have carried over into the season, unfortunately. Everyone in the starting lineup got at least one hit, aside from Braden Bishop, who did execute a sacrifice bunt, and Tom Murphy, who struck out three times and went 0 for 5. Chris Flexen did go five innings. Will Vest came in and pitched two innings through 32 pitches, so he's a two-inning reliever gang. Mariners seem to have a few of them, which... Honestly, is news to me. I thought they were all kind of one-inning guys, which again begs the question, why do they need an eight-man bullpen? Anyways, Drew Steckenrider pitched the eighth inning and earned his first win as a Mariner. And of course, Rafael Montero came in for that one, two, three, ninth inning to earn his second save. Scott Service earned his first ejection of the season in the bottom of the seventh. Ty France had been hit by two pitches earlier in the ballgame. Neither of them were intentional. 
They were pitching him inside, and a couple got away. It happens. Will Vest hit Byron Buxton with an 0-1 pitch with one out, a changeup that got away. Apparently, the home plate umpire wanted to stop the ensuing beanball war, which was never going to happen, and issued warnings to both benches in a needless and honestly ridiculous move. France gets plunked twice unintentionally, and warnings are issued after Bi- after Buxton gets hit with a changeup. Service took exception to this, as well he should have, and got run by crew chief Laz Diaz, who was umpiring second base. Good for Service for sticking up for his team. This was exceptionally bad umpiring. On Friday, John Miller and I were praising this very crew for their handling of an originally missed call, but my goodness, did they blow this one. Fortunately, it had little impact on the game, and the whole episode was ancillary, but it never should have happened in the first place. The Mariners knew the Twins were not throwing at France, and the Twins knew the Mariners were not throwing at Buxton. It was so obvious, I guess the umpires missed it. Anyways, I want to talk about Buxton for a minute because he was very impressive this se- uh, this series. He is the Twins' 27-year-old center fielder, and this is his seventh year in the league already, but he's had a lot of injury problems in his career, gang. If that young man can stay healthy... He's an MVP candidate. He is good. Not only does he play a fantastic center field, his offensive game looks to improved as well. Coming into this season, he had a career slash line of 238, 289, 430. That's a 719 OPS. He's only played over 100 games once when he played 140 games in 2017. That year, he slashed 253, 314, 413. That's a, a 728 OPS, but a ton of strikeouts. 150 of them in 462 at-bats. That's about 32.5%. This year, so far in eight games, 481, 548, 1185 slash line. That's an OPS of 1734, gang. Five home runs and four doubles are among his 13 hits, and a strikeout rate of 18.5%. Obviously, he's not going to hit 481 or wind up with an OPS damn near 2000, but man, oh man, is he off to a hot start. I do hope he can stay healthy so we can really see what this man is capable of over the course of a full season. Going to talk about the upcoming series in Baltimore, among other things, on the other side of this break. But first, if you have a question or a comment, like DC shut up about curling, send an email to LockedOnMariners at gmail.com. I will address it on the air in a future mailbag episode. I'm not sure if I'll be doing it on Fridays like I did last season or some other day. Thinking about maybe a midweek mailbag, but I do want to make it at least a bi-weekly feature. Probably beginning next week since I don't have a lot of emails yet. Questions and comments on anything and everything are welcome and encouraged. It doesn't even have to do with baseball. In fact, oftentimes those type of emails turn out to be more interesting than baseball related emails. Coming up, which team threw its first ever no-hitter last Friday? If you guessed the Portland Lumberjacks, you're wrong on so many levels. 
Now this from Built Bar, the greatest protein bar in the history of things covered in chocolate. Not only do they taste great, and they do, but they're actually good for you. A rare combination. High in protein and fiber, low in sugar, carbs, and calories. Gluten-free as well, and the nut-free flavors are all made in a nut-free facility. Go to BuiltBar.com and buy some. You can even compile a box of the flavors you'd most like to try, or your already established favorite, like raspberry, peanut butter brownie, and motor oil. At checkout, if you use promo code draw to the button to score one, nothing happens. So use promo code LOCKED20 instead, that works much better, and you'll get 20% off your order. BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED20, L-O-C-K-E-D-2-0, for 20% off your order of the best protein bars that have ever existed. Built Bar, maybe she's born with it. Now back to Locked On Mariners and your host, D.C. Lundberg. Thank you very much, Joey Martin. Ladies and gentlemen out there, be a waiver wire winner with a Locked On Fantasy Baseball podcast. It's daily, daily podcast hosted by veteran fantasy analyst Scott Cullen, who uses data and nearly two decades of fantasy baseball experience to offer the strategies and waiver wire pickups that lead to league wins. Two decades, that's almost 21 years. Follow the Locked On Fantasy Baseball podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever the heck you get podcasts. DC Lundberg here with you with a preview of the four-game series against the Orioles, which begins this afternoon in Baltimore. Justice Sheffield will get the nod for the M's, looking to reverse his fortunes after a shaky first outing. He'll be opposed by Dean Kremer, who I've never heard of, quite honestly, who will also be making his second start of the year and only his sixth big league appearance. In his last full season, uh, 2019, which was split, split between three different minor leagues, he started 21 games with a 3.82 ERA and a whip of 1.302, 2.9 walks per nine, and 7.9 Ks per nine. He's a 6'2", 200-pound right-hander, whose numbers in his few games in the majors have not been great, but then again, it's just five games. In his first start of this year, he only lasted three innings against the Yankees, allowing three runs, all of them earned, on five hits, four walks, and a home run. He struck out five and threw 85 pitches, a very high total for just three innings. Chef's uh, first outing, as mentioned earlier, was not great. Five innings against the White Sox, six runs, four of them were earned, on eight hits and two walks, one home run and five strikeouts. The White Sox are a very good offensive team, very good against southpaws, and the Orioles aren't. (laughs) So I do think Chef will fare better against Baltimore. This is a team where the M's uh, Mariners pitchers could be able to get their footing. Their first three opponents all had very good offenses. I'll go into a bit more detail on the other three pitching matchups throughout the rest of the series, but I will note that on Tuesday, Nick Margevichus will get his first start of the season, which kind of leads into the next item, and that is a couple of injury updates. I'll start with James Paxton since that's whom Margo is filling in for. Maple sought a second opinion on his arm uh, following originally being recommended Tommy John surgery or TJS or TJS. That second opinion will come at some point today, which we'll probably be talking about again on tomorrow's program. Evan White sat up yesterday's game once again with that with that quad strain. He worked out prior to the game, and there's 
really not much of an update other than that. He's not on the injured list, but it's also unknown as of this recording whether or not he will be in the lineup this afternoon in Camden Yards. Moving on to the next item, like I said, uh, quite a few things to get uh, to in this block. The first no-hitter of 2021 occurred last Friday night, and one team that had not yet thrown a no-hitter has now thrown a no-hitter. However, it was against the Texas Rangers, so I'm not really convinced it should count. Just kidding. Anyways, Joe Musgrove tossed the first no-no in San Diego Padres history. The only blip on his radar was a hit-by-pitch to Joey Gallo in the fourth inning. He threw 112 pitches in this complete game effort, striking out 10 and no walks. The only starter who did not strike out for the Rangers was center fielder Leody Tavares, while everyone else besides Anderson Tejeda caved once. Tejeda took the collar with three strikeouts. It was a 3-0 win for San Diego to bring them to 5-3 to five and three on the season, and they are now 7-3 and three as of Sunday night. Congrats to San Diego native Joe Musgrove for making Padres history. Changing sports, but not yet to curling. Something happened yesterday at the U.S. Open, which has not happened on television in the PBA since 1991. I have not had a chance to watch the full telecast yet, as on Sunday I was busy watching curling, the Mariners game, and also doing this show. But yesterday, Anthony Nyer converted a 7-10 split on television, only the, only the fourth time that's been done on TV, the first since Jess Stayrook in 1991. And this was the first in a major. Also, this was Nyer's first television appearance and he's only 18 years old. Super impressive. All four 710 conversions have been unique. Three of them have been done by left-handers, including Nyers. Nyers threw his ball at the 10 pin, which ricocheted off the sidewall, off the uh, ball, and then back into the 7 pin, while the other two southpaws both threw at the 7 pin. So Anthony Nyer joins the great Mark Roth, John Mazza, and Jess Stayrook as the only bowlers to convert the 7-10 split on television. Roth's was in 1980, while Mazza's and Stayrook's were both in 1991. I cannot wait to watch this full telecast tomorrow before the Mariners game. And now to wrap up the Men's World Curling Championships, the USA did make the playoffs and faced Switzerland in its quarterfinal game. John Schuster and his crew were the number three seed, while Peter de Cruz and Switzerland were seeded number six. There was a COVID-related delay between quarterfinal games, leading to the oddity of having both semifinal games and both medal games occurring simultaneously yesterday, preceded by the last quarterfinal game in the morning meaning that the winner of that game would have to play three times that day. That's no easy task, gang. The corner final was a very good game, judging by what I saw of it. The other side effect of the delay was that only the final half of the game was broadcast on American television. It was region-blocked on the live YouTube broadcast. But it is scheduled to be rerun on Olympic Channel Tuesday night, and I already have my DVR set. It was a close game right down to the very end, which Switzerland wound up taking with a 7-6 final, ending Team USA's Men's World Championship. uh, Switzerland would go on to face Nicholas Adin and Sweden in the semifinals, which Nicholas Adin and his team took quite handily. Switzerland, they just looked tired at the end of the match and wound up conceding after eight ends with an 11-3 score. 
Bruce Mowat and Scotland, who had defeated Brendan Botcher and Canada in its quarterfinal, beat the number two ranked Russian Curling Federation 5-3. The RCF and Sweden gained a buys into the semifinal as the top two seeded teams. Both medal games were fantastic. Peter de Cruz in Switzerland took the bronze pardon me, over Sergei Glukov and the Russian Curling Federation by a 6-5 score. Because of another doping scandal, Russia is barred from international competition, though its athletes can compete, just not under the Russian flag or any national symbols. In any case, Sergei Glukov certainly opened up a lot of eyes in this tournament and basically carried his team the whole way. He was spectacular. The gold medal game was the first meeting between Sweden and Scotland in a title match since 1967, and this was also very close the whole way through until Nicholas Adin threw an impressive double takeout in the ninth to score five, and the game had been tied at five at that point, but that uh, double takeout prompted Bruce Mowat to concede the match to Sweden, who won with a 10-5 victory in their third straight men's world championship. The women's world curling championships begin on April 30th, a little less than three weeks away. Tabitha Peterson will skip Team USA. At the 2020 National Championships in Cheney, she was a fill-in for the team's ordinary skip, Nina Roth, who was on maternity leave. Peterson, who was really the team's vice skip, uh, led them to victory at that event over Jamie Sinclair. Claire's team, which has since broken up. Roth was originally going to return to her position as Skip, but Peterson will remain in that position, and Roth has uh, moved to Vice Skip and Third. Really looking forward to this tournament as well, gang. Well, that's going to do it for this show. We'll wrap up this afternoon's game tomorrow, and also preview Tuesday's game. Joining me to do that will be Henry Warnemont, Roscoe the Raccoon, and a Fire Hydrant. Remember to download, rate, and follow Locked On Mariners. Look for us on any podcasting app you can think of. Leave a rating and review if your podcasting app of choice allows. Thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen, and congrats again to Nicholas Adin, Oscar Eriksson, Rasmus Rana, and Christopher Sundgren, and all of Team Sweden on winning the Men's World Curling Championship. Until tomorrow, have a great day. This is Joey Martin speaking for Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.